Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, as always, and today we're joined by Dr. Jashri Kulkarni. She's professor of psychiatry at the Monash University, who works in the area of women's mental health. She has written about premenstrual syndrome. She has, she has used hormones to, to treat schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression in women. She founded and heads the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Center. So Dr. Kulkarni, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you very much for having me on your program, Ricardo. Sure, the pleasure is mine. So um, let, let's start by talking a little bit about depression. So. Is it really true that women are more susceptible to it than men? Unfortunately, yes. The worldwide data uh, shows that the ratio of women to men experiencing depression is two to one. So mm -hmm. twice as many women worldwide experience depression uh, and anxiety disorders in their lifetime. So I wish it was not the case, of course, but um, this is the facts that we, we cannot dispute. Mm -hmm. But what are the main risk factors for depression? Also, because then we will probably get into where that difference between men and women comes from. Sure. So it's, it's a very complicated um, condition. Uh, depression or anxiety disorders is not as simple as uh, physical health conditions. So we conceptualize the cause of depression as having biological reasons, psychological reasons, and environmental or social reasons. So when we look at depression in women, we can understand that there is some biological factors. And again, my work has been looking at the hormone factors and I'll come back to that. There are psychological factors, which is the way that uh, women uh, perceive stress and deal with stress. And then there are the environmental or social issues, such as um, discrepancies in power uh, so men and women are often not given the same amount of power by society, not the same levels of salaries, uh, particularly violence against women, you know, domestic violence and interpersonal violence is a big is a big issue. So these are sorts of environmental issues that impact on the psychology and the biology. When we look at the biology, there are certain times in a woman's life when she's more at risk of depression and anxiety. Some of this is, for example, in the post-childbirth time. We know about postnatal or post-childbirth delivery uh, depression. We also know that at menopause, uh, leading into middle age, that uh, there's many more women who experience depression. So there are some biological factors and hormone factors and other factors that really do lead to this issue. And of course, with COVID worldwide, with the pandemic, we have seen that the figures have escalated and got worse for women who are now experiencing even more depression and anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. So, but what are the concrete biological differences when it comes, for example, to hormones? And I'm not sure if there's perhaps some 
differences in brain structures or something like that between men and women that explain this higher susceptibility to depression in women? Sure. So, I mean, one of the factors when we look at the reproductive hormones, that's the gonadal hormones, we know that estrogen, for example, is a very good um, antidepressant or antipsychotic in the brain. It works on the neurochemicals, serotonin, dopamine, and other neurochemicals, and it helps to keep the brain and mental health uh, in, in check. So when there are big shifts in estrogen, particularly around uh, the uh, monthly cycles, so there are fluctuations in estrogen, and when the estrogen levels are low, there is a, an issue or a problem with the neurochemical pathways then creating the depressive uh, structures in the, the depressive neurochemical uh, environment in the brain, which then, if it leads, you know, if it's left unchecked, leads to circuit differences. And then it, that can lead to structural differences. So it, it's a complex um, hormone, brain chemistry, brain circuitry issue. And in women, the up and down nature of the hormone fluctuations seems to be one of the risk factors. I mean, men also have brain estrogen. They have not as much as women, but they have brain estrogen. But it is not fluctuating in the course of the adult life. And then also with pregnancy, for example, there is a massive change in the brain chemistry, which sees a rapid rise in estrogen, but then there's a rapid fall as soon as the baby is born. So there are many things that are, are at play here in terms of the hormonal fluctuations and the feedback into the brain chemistry in women more than men. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if this makes sense, but could testosterone also play a role there? Because since it is much higher in men than women, could it be a protection against depression? So in one, it's very interesting that you raise that because in fact, in um, some situations, testosterone is experimentally given the small doses for actually uh, increasing um, uh, aggression and uh, increasing such things as muscle mass and metabolism mm -hmm. activity and so on, which of course is the opposite to what happens in depression. But right. the other side of testosterone is that, in fact, in psychotic conditions like schizophrenia, more testosterone is bad. Uh, so the testosterone there has a psychosis effect, but it could have an antidepressant effect. Right. The, uh, yeah, that, that's very interesting. I mean, the way hormones uh, influence different kinds of conditions and how perhaps they interact with one another in people, in men, women, and individuals. It's very interesting. So uh, tell us more now about the postnatal depression. So what happens there? Are there some sort of hormone imbalances or something like that that explain why women suffer from this condition? Yes. So um, what happens in pregnancy is that there's big, massive hormone shifts from the minute that the woman becomes pregnant the developing fetus creates a whole cascade and change 
in a number of different hormones. And this, of course, is happening in the brain. So for a very long time, it's very important to remember that, you know, people did not believe or understand that gonadal hormones or the estrogen, progesterone, testosterone hormones had anything to do in the brain. They thought it was, you know, all that they did was uh, help with reproduction and having babies. <laughs> so one important or lots of important neuroscience findings have occurred in the last 10 or 15 years. And we understand a lot more about this. So in pregnancy, there is a massive rise in estrogen and progesterone in the woman's brain. And that, in fact, actually leads in many cases to the woman describing very good mental health during the pregnancy when all these hormones are high. So you often hear that story that she felt physically, I mean, you know, there's the nausea and all the problems of the first trimester, but once that settles, mental health-wise, many women say the second and third trimester, they felt better than they ever felt before. Then with the delivery of the baby, there is a massive change that happens almost, uh, it starts to happen as soon as the baby is delivered. The hormones suddenly drop. So estrogen has been very high and then suddenly that level drops. And we think in that drop that they're in the woman who develops depression, this sudden drop does not change the mechanism, the switch mechanism, so that she then has a usual brain chemistry. And this may be, in fact, why some women without that switch, and that is probably, again, I can talk about the neurochemistry here. It's very interesting, the allopregnanolone switch um, and the NMDA systems, different neurochemistry is altered. So this woman who um, doesn't have that switch will then develop the postnatal depression fairly quickly. The other hormone that is at play here is uh, in order to feed the newborn, the, the mother has to produce milk and to produce breast milk. There is another hormone called prolactin, which creates the breast milk. Now, this hormone also has an effect in the brain and it can be very depressive in the brain. So we often see that in the women who might be a little bit depressed, if they breastfeed for a long, long time, they can get more depressed. So that's not a, an easy thing to say because, of course, we know that the breast milk is, is better for the baby rather than bottle feeding, which has different complications for the baby. But this is a, you know, you're weighing up the, what's good for the mother, what's good for the baby, and sometimes that's a very tricky balance. But these hormones are very potent. They're potent neurosteroids, and they have a lot of effects in uh, all sorts of ways in terms of brain chemistry and brain circuitry, and then eventually brain structures. Mm -hmm. uh, so when studying, for example, why in certain periods of women's lives, and particularly now we're talking about uh, pregnancy, uh, I mean, why in certain phases, certain hormones go up and others go down, and then in others, the opposite occurs. Uh, do you also look into, for example, evolutionary explanations for that or is that something you're not particularly interested in i'm not particularly doing research in that area but of course the whole area is very interesting you know we can theorize we don't have evidence but we can theorize that um you know there's a there's a there's a whole reason for the nurturing uh psychology if you like 
you know, I talked about biological and psychological. The psychological factors uh, for women dealing with stress is that um, they may become depressed as a result of the stress. They take it inwards because evolutionary-wise, they are not the hunters. They were not the hunters. So, again, if you stress a male in, in that evolutionary sense, he'll fight. He'll throw a spear. He will run after the animal. He'll kill it. You know, that sort of basic primitive behaviour is very different to the basic primitive behaviour of the woman who will hide, will take the stress inwards and protect her babies. You know, there's an there's a evolutionary um, uh, more primitive brain uh, responses to these sorts of stresses. Of course, this is not the whole picture because in modern days, you know, there are many different intellectual and other mechanisms that we can use to deal with stress. And so this is one of the things that, uh, you know, we can overcome these things uh, because it is not all predestined uh, as it was for our primitive ancestors. Mm -hmm. Yes, I also asked you that because uh, I'm not sure to what extent this is supported by the evidence or not, but I've heard some people hypothesizing that maybe postnatal depression is a mechanism that evolved because in our early evolutionary environments, perhaps it would be easier for women, if that were the case, for them to uh, get rid of the baby if it had any sort of uh, problem, any sort of health problem that would render it basically unable to survive? Well, these are all speculations. Again, you know, there's nothing <laughs> particularly that we, un we have data or experience to say this. And certainly everything that happened in the primitive brain is, is not set you know, our brains are evolving also. If mm -hmm. you think about it, you know, we are programmed to look at screens now and uh, rather than reading big books, you know, we prefer to watch the films. We, we watch the screens. That takes different visual processing mechanisms. So, again, you know, our brains change. Um, the roles of women have changed. We are no longer just about having babies. Mm -hmm. So you know, biology is not all the story but we still have to take some some you know a notice of the fact that there are some biological issues but in women we also have the technology now to use hormones to help to to shift some of the biology right. as well mm -hmm. so and talking about that and particularly using hormones to shift some of the biology in the case of women since it's women we're focusing on now. Uh, what happens after menopause? Does menopause have any important impact on women's mental well-being? Absolutely, it does. And uh, menopause is a long process. Everybody thinks the woman is reproductive one day and the next day she's not. It doesn't work like that. It's a 10-year transition. So it's mm -hmm. over time. And every... Uh, change is that the estrogen is dropping and as the as we know the estrogen is a good hormone in the brain it's protective it's uh, it's got a lot of useful um, good mental health stabilizing points 
And so with menopause, with the estrogen dropping in particular, we do see this rapid increase in depression in middle-aged women. And of course, it also affects a number of body systems. Uh, you know, for example, um, the joints, your shoulder joint, ankle joint, hip joint, you know, that many women have pains and aches in these joints because estrogen is a very potent uh, musculoskeletal uh, protecting agent also uh, so you know that can be that can be a troubling issue at hot flushes we know temperature regulation is another estrogen role and progesterone too so there are many many body effects but the important effects that we study is in the mental health and uh, again here you know evolutionary wise the short the lifespan was short for women so they didn't spend much time after menopause they were probably dead by the time they were in their 50s right. so they would have menopause and not much more life expected after that now of course with uh, most women living to their 80s and beyond there is a considerable amount of life that is spent uh, post reproduction age so we um, have, a, have a real uh, important job to make sure that we understand the roles of the hormones in mental health so that the woman can actually have a good quality of life for a long period of time. And that's where hormone treatments are very effective. And those hormone treatments, we're talking here mostly about hormone replacement therapy, right? Yes, yes. Yes, mm -hmm. combinations of estrogen and progesterone usually, but sometimes people use a little bit of testosterone also. Mm -hmm. And these hormones used to replace the ones that after menopause women lack, uh, they help taking those mental health issues? Correct. That's exactly what our data has shown and our clinical trials work has uh, helped many women who had very significant depression and uh, they didn't respond to standard antidepressant treatment, but they did respond very well to HRT, hormone replacement therapies. Mm -hmm. So let's get into some other conditions you also study. Uh, are there any important sex differences in susceptibility to schizophrenia? So this is a very um, interesting question. And uh, from worldwide data and the data I collected in my earlier work, um, we found that across the lifespan, men and women equally suffer from schizophrenia. Mm. So there's a one-to-one -one ratio across the lifespan. But the difference is that men tend to present at a younger age for the mm. first time with their psychotic episodes. So it's very common to see 16-year-old to 19 or 20-year-old boys or men presenting with first episode schizophrenia, whereas for women, there's more likely that they will be about you know, 24 up to 30 years of age presenting for the first time with schizophrenia. So this is the gender difference. The second gender difference is that there is a peak of onset of schizophrenia in the middle-aged women. So between 42, 43, up to 50, there's a second peak. It's not as big. So the biggest group is still between 24 and 30, but there's a second peak for women, which there is not for men. 
So this is again a reason to think that the hormone um, depletion with menopause is causing the second peak. And if we take the that hypothesis that estrogen is good for the brain, is protective against schizophrenia, so that when there is less estrogen, the woman is more likely to develop psychosis. We may also say that the 16-year-old the woman has higher levels of estrogen being just immediately post-puberty, uh, and so this is protecting her from early onset of schizophrenia. It takes a while for the levels to drop enough that then she develops schizophrenia. And these early onset schizophrenia that we see occurring in men more than women, does it have anything to do with testosterone or not? Yes, again, that's the other part of the hypothesis that in 15 or 16 year old boys, there is a, a large amount of testosterone immediately after the beginning of puberty or just at puberty. And it's not just the testosterone, the whole gonadal hormone uh, axis is, is high. So there is the precursors to the testosterone in the hormones of the pituitary and the hypothalamus that all of it is high and that this may again be part of the reason that boys are presenting at a younger age with the schizophrenia because testosterone is the opposite to estrogen in the schizophrenia world. Mm -hmm. Do we see any sex differences in terms of how schizophrenia gets manifested in men and women? Is the, uh, do we have anything like that? So you mean the symptoms that they see? Yes, yes, exactly. So again, uh, what we find is that, uh, and again, this, the debate is, is the symptom difference because of the gender or is it because of the age of onset? So mm -hmm. traditionally, when you look at somebody who has early schizophrenia, they are young. They are not as developed in a lot of the skills, relationship skills, work skills, education skills. You know, they're younger. So their form of psychosis is more uh, varied. It's not as clear. By the time somebody becomes mature as an adult, they have a better uh, education relationship descriptions and their symptoms seem to be clearer. So one of the things that we notice is women present with much more delusional pictures, mm -hmm. not so much the um, thought disorder and other aspects, whereas uh, it's the opposite in the young presentations. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, and what about bipolar disorder? Is there... Is that a condition where we also find gender differences and perhaps some role played by sex hormones? So again, it's not clear in bipolar disorder what the gender differences particularly are because there is an equal distribution of true bipolar disorder. That's bipolar type 1 in both men and women. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are some ca case stories of the fact that the women present more with the de depressive uh, themes or the depressed phase, uh, whereas uh, the men may present more with the manic phase. But the, I don't think the evidence is as clear for bipolar disorder. And certainly the, um, the complication here is that um, there is a condition called bipolar type 2. Now, bipolar type 2 is where there is depression, but the mania 
is not as high. You know, the the right. it's, it's hypomanic or a little mania. That's why it's called type two. And the issue here is that many women who have bipolar type two have a very awful history of trauma and violence, sexual abuse. These things are, uh, you take the story and the patient will tell awful stories of what happened to her when she was a child and a young adolescent. So you have the role of trauma in this presentation, which is, again, a, a different issue and can be making this presentation uh, uh, quite varied. Mm-hmm. So now more of a general question. Do sex hormones have an impact on cognition? Yes, they do. And my colleague, professor, Associate Professor Caroline Gervich's uh, work is all about the hormones and cognition. And uh, again, we note that in women, uh, for example, at different cycle phases in the reproductive woman, uh, in the low estrogen phases, she is... Uh, not as good at the verbal skills, at mm-hmm. the speaking skills, uh, but better at the visual skills, visual processing. In other words, she's more masculine. In the high estrogen phases, it is opposite. So she's much better with uh, speaking skills, verbal fluency, and so on, and not as good in the uh, mathematics, spatial, or visual uh, skills. So we find that the gender differences, uh, by and large, are that uh, men are better at visuospatial tasks rather than the words, the verbal verbal tasks. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, since we get the clear connection between hormone levels and the presence of certain hormones and how cognition differs across several domains, I mean, that, that also shows a link between sex hormones and the kinds of gender differences we find on average in different cognitive domains, correct? That's right. That's correct. But these are the, um, you know, this is a, a an average picture. And of mm-hmm. course, there are, sure. there are many exceptions to the picture. You know, there are some women who are fabulous with visuospatial skills and some men who are fabulous like yourself with verbal skills. So, you know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not easy to characterize this for all, all men and women. Sure. Uh, I mean, I was just thinking perhaps maybe in ter- instead of thinking strictly in terms of sex differences, trying to say that perhaps there's a clear biological link between sex hormones and how our cognition works. Yeah. Yes, it, it is. Because again, these are brain hormones. They work in many parts of the brain, mm-hmm. including emotional uh, expression and feelings, including cognitive or higher thinking, abstract thinking, mathematical thinking, as well as, uh, you know, the uh, reality testing in terms of psychosis symptoms it's a very they work across the brain there are receptors for estrogen for example all throughout the brain so it has profound effects in many many ways (laughs) but i mean since we have these cognitive effects by sex hormones that also that's also an important point when it comes to understanding perhaps not only how not only why we get certain sex differences when it comes to susceptibility 
to certain psychiatric conditions, but also explaining perhaps why certain individuals are more susceptible to them than others, because I would imagine that there are several different aspects of cognition that play a role in psychiatric conditions, correct? Absolutely, you're correct. You're very correct. It is uh, again a role of, of susceptibility and style. Of how do you? How does? How does? You, how do you deal with the stress, the threat? You know, mm -hmm. if somebody coming to attack you. What is your style? How do you deal with that? How do you cope with emotional processing? Um, how do you verbalize? Do you do you verbalize or do you keep it bottled up? I mean, all these things have a different. Um, conglomeration of biological, psychological, environmental factors. In environmental, I include family. Uh, you know, what were you taught? How were you taught to uh, contain or to express emotions? You know, that that's there's learning and environment comes into that as well. Right. Very complicated. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. So we've already talked about menopause. What about the use of oral contraceptives? Since they also change hormone levels, what kind of impact do they have on women's mental health? Um, yes, they have a lot. And um, again, you know, the uh, development of the oral contraceptive pill was very important, is very important for women to have control over their reproduction. This is a very significant uh, advance for women's rights. So this was the first thing that uh, in the 1960s, it was seen as a really important thing. It is still. However, you remember I said people had a difficulty understanding that the sex hormones could have an impact on mental health. So when the pill was developed, the oral contraceptive pill, the mental health aspects of the pill was not considered. It was really thought that estrogen is all about whether the woman ovulates and whether she can then conceive a baby and so on. So there was no consideration given to the measurement of mental health with the pill. Now, we have done work in that and uh, others have done the epidemiological studies. And what we're all saying is that certain types of pill, particularly the progesterone in the pill, can cause depression mm -hmm. in vulnerable women. Not every woman. But in some women, we don't know why some women are more susceptible to the environmental or the, the effect of the pill, but they are, and they can develop depression by taking the pill and certain types of pill. We say the pill, it's more than, you know, there's many, many types. So this is one of the things that we are trying to do now is understand which are the pill types that are better for depression and which are the ones that actually create more depression. But it's something that, uh, you know, women should be aware of and their health practitioners, when they are when the health practitioner is prescribing the oral contraceptive pill or the woman is taking this, she needs to be aware that if she suddenly or slowly develops depression and nothing else is wrong in her life, that it could actually be due to the pill. That's very important. So there's that link between the pill and depression, but could it be the case also that oral contraceptives might improve women's mental well-being in certain ways or not? Yes, particularly in the woman who has that cyclical fluctuation of mental health because of the cyclical variations in estrogen in particular. Mm -hmm. If you flatten the, this 
with the hormones, if you just give the pill, it causes the cycle to disappear, then that can improve her mental health. But you have to choose the right pill. Otherwise, you can make the situation much worse. Mm -hmm. So with all of what we talked about in mind, uh, should psychiatrists care about gender differences when it comes to, for example, diagnosing conditions and treating conditions and things like that? Absolutely. It's really imperative that we don't treat patients as if they're all the same. Everybody is an individual and everybody has specific biological, psychological and social aspects to why they are mentally unwell. And that will also guide what should be the treatment. And gender is a big part of that. So we need to be very uh, careful in understanding the, the gender impact, and we should be designing treatments for the future that take that into account. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to psychiatric research, do you think that people do a good job in terms of controlling for sex, or is that something people should be more careful about? I think we're beginning to control for sex, but I think there needs to be a lot more. And uh, hopefully in the next next five, 10 years, we'll see a lot more of the gender issue being looked at in research. Mm -hmm. uh, but do we need more women as part of clinical trials or not? Absolutely, we do. And uh, again, some of the... Um, The rules that are made for clinical trials now uh, state that, in fact, there should be equal numbers of men and women in the trials. And, of course, uh, you know, you make sure that the woman has adequate contraception because the last thing you want is uh, uh, unknown pregnancy with the effects of a new drug, for example, on the fetus. But that is possible. You know, women can control their fertility. And uh, so we take advantage of that to make sure that new trials contain equal numbers. Mm -hmm. Yes, I also asked you that question, these questions focused on sex slash gender, I mean, whatever way you want to think about it, because nowadays we have this sort of discourse where certain people tend to ignore the socio-cultural factors behind sex differences, others uh, want to ignore completely the biological differences, but particularly here in psychiatry, it seems that uh, people, it's a place where it shows that people should pay attention to all of those factors when trying to understand not only uh, gender differences in behavior, for example, but also in susceptibility to different psychiatric conditions. Yes, I do think that having a holistic view of the individual is a much better uh, way to understand this individual's experience of mental ill health and then inform a holistic treatment uh, done in collaboration with the individual so that you have a much better outcome that you can't just expect one size fits all when it comes to treatment. Mm -hmm. So uh, just one last question with all of this in mind I mean the fact that we have uh, not only gender, but also individual differences in hormone levels, and perhaps we also have uh, genetic factors playing a role in different psychiatric conditions, and then we have 
personal experiences, psychological and social factors, do you think that this would make a good case for a personalized medicine? Absolutely. I think that personalized medicine or individualized, tailored medicine is a much, much better way to go. It respects the individual's own experiences. I think we have a lot to learn uh, for, from each of our patients who are living with the condition. And I always find it's incredible, some of the resilience and uh, some of the things that people have been able to learn about themselves and put into practice is really great to work with uh, patients in a collaborative sense and understand and learn from them and have an individualized approach for each person. We will always do better in that way. Mm -hmm. Very well. Okay, so just before we go, Dr. Kulkarni, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Sure. So um, if you would like to log in to our um, website, it is www.maprc.org.au. So www.maprc.org.au. That would find our research. Okay, great. So I will be leaving a link to that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Kulkarni, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Ricardo, for having me. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the channel. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running, so I will leave links in the description box for PayPal and Patreon. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like, like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perga, Larson, Laurero, Francis Ford, Enns, Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Life, Roberto Inguenzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodranko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Lybrandt, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, JW, João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, 
Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Diegui, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, My Producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafini, Kian Gilligan, Luís Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, and Sergio Quadriano. Thank you for all. <laughs>